0: You're listening to the COVID 19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID 19. Andrew and I are delighted that
1: today we are joined by Dr. Scott Dowell, who leads the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation's efforts, its response to the COVID-19 pandemic. He's been at the foundation now for five years. Prior to that, he was at CDC in Atlanta where he led the division that did outbreak and pandemic preparedness and response. Scott, thank you so much for being with us today. It's my pleasure. So let's start with a question that looks back over the last four months. We're approaching May 1st, this outbreak was first disclosed December 31st. So we have several months now where we have struggled with all sorts of enormous challenges, testing, putting in place the requirements for being able to walk back, um, the social distancing strictures. What I wanted to do as the front end of this conversation is ask you to tell us, what are the things that have gone really well? There's a lot of things that have happened that have advanced the quality of the response. It may have to do with data and management of data. It may have to do with innovative financing arrangements or programmatic interventions. There's any number of things that we can talk about, but you've been watching carefully the evolution across that spectrum. Tell us what you think have been the major advances in this period that may have caught us by surprise.
2: Yeah. I do think it's easy to get caught up in what our challenges are. And having worked on this for dawn to dusk for four months, it's it's easy to get frustrated. When I step back, I remind myself that literally hundreds of thousands of lives have been saved by the COVID responses. When we were looking at those early projections of exponential increase based on an effective R of 2 to 3 we were looking at many, many more deaths in every country affected than what we're seeing. And there's a number of reasons for that, but it really has been a stunning global response. I think surveillance and epidemiology, modeling, the country responses all have played their role. But the, the overall picture is one where a virus that had the potential to take hundreds of thousands of lives more than it has, has been slowed. So we entered
1: this picture without really knowing what the true impact and value of social distancing would be on
2: this scale. Is that what you're pointing to? You know, in previous pandemics, we have done social distancing in a limited scale. The evidence for the effectiveness of social distancing was there. But it had not been used on a wide scale. And I remember back in the beginning when we were hearing about the shutdowns in Wuhan. And, you know, a lot of us were speculating about, is is it possible even to quarantine an entire city or an entire region? And what are the economic and societal impacts of doing that kind of thing? But since then, essentially every country around the world has decided to do that. They have taken the choice of short-term economic and societal hits with these shutdowns and prioritized, essentially, when you think about it, they've prioritized the lives of the elderly people in their societies and caught between this dilemma of, do we prioritize our short-term Economic well-being, or do we prioritize the lives of the elderly in our country? Country after country around the world has said, "This we, we can't make this choice. We are going to have to do some version of a lockdown. We're going to initially we're going to limit travel, international travel. Uh, we're going to add things like school closures, and work from home policies, uh, and then very strict or modestly strict, depending on the countries." requirements for people to shelter at home in place. And this kind of non-pharmaceutical intervention done at this scale has, has never been done before. We've uh, never seen this kind of economic and societal disruption. I remind myself that those projected epidemic curves, which were real, uh, have not come to pass.
1: Now, say a few words also about those countries that at least flirted with the notion of let's just simply allow herd immunity to happen. I mean, this was a notion that had some valence in, in Britain, uh, in the Netherlands, in Sweden. So how has that tendency played through?
2: You know, honestly, people who are public health epidemiologists who looked at this ahead of time could reasonably have said, well, what are the other choices? other than a total societal shutdown which we know the economic damages are going to come. And I remember I think it was March 16th when the prime minister of the Netherlands got up and said, we're going to do this. We are going to shield our elderly, try and protect them, but otherwise we are going to let this virus create herd immunity, which essentially means it's going to run through our population until we get to herd immunity. Now, and that's at least like 60 or
1: 70% of the population.
2: That's right. With an R naught of in the two and a half to three range, um, you have to get up to 60 or 70 percent of the population immune before the immunity of the population bends that curve. But, you know, within days, a week or so, the Netherlands had, had backed down and said, we can't do this. We're seeing rising case numbers, we're seeing deaths. It's not tolerable to go to that. And the UK, as you know, also flirted with the same concept and then back down. So I think faced with this dilemma, uh, do we basically take a significant hit to our economy or do we let the virus infect our population and accept mortality, especially in the elderly? Country after country has decided we are going to take a hit to our economy in the short term with the idea that we can protect these lives. And that, I think, in historical terms, is just a remarkable thing to contemplate. I wanna ask my colleague and co-host,
1: Andrew Schwartz, to jump in here.
0: Scott, why do you think that people in America think that it's working in Sweden?
2: The Swedish situation is a bit different. They have different laws than other places. For one thing, the technocrats are in charge. The epidemiologists are really calling the shots in Sweden to a greater extent than in many other countries where these are political decisions.
1: This is Anders Techno.
2: Right. So they've taken a measured approach to testing, isolation, quarantine, contact tracing, and a more limited uh, lockdown or shutdown than other countries have. They haven't been spared. The, initially, it, would, it looked like they, they were having lower rates of infection, lower rates of mortality than other countries in Europe. I don't know. It's early to tell for me. I, when I look at the Swedish epidemic curve, it's going up. It, it's going to be tough there, I think, as it has been everywhere. But, you know, it's a, it's a variation in the way uh, things are being approached. And I think it's appropriate to continue to ask the questions about, are there other ways to do this other than the big crude hammer of a total societal shutdown? Uh, are there more fine-tuned ways to contain this and suppress this over time? And I think those are the questions that are being asked more and more now. And I think it's perfectly appropriate to ask those questions.
0: So, We've had some good news on social distancing, as you point out. Have we had other good news that we can point to that hasn't really been circulating in the media, such as have we had good technological advances on tracing through technology or um, how are we doing on vaccine development, prophylactics, things like that?
2: There are a number of countries that have managed to suppress this epidemic using the finer tools, the scalpel-like approach of finding the infected people in their infectious contacts and separating them from others. This is the way forward for the U.S. and other countries. And we can look to places like Thailand, uh, like Singapore, Hong Kong, South Korea, Taiwan. These are places that had relatively strong public health Many of them had the experience of the SARS epidemic. And so they knew how quickly they had to move and how important it was to identify cases and their contacts and get them isolated. And they've used those tools more effectively and that has allowed them to use the crude uh, lockdown tools less. And they've had variable success. To be honest, Singapore has been hit recently with an upsurge in cases in migrant workers who were not identified early enough. And and there's a number of reasons why they've had problems, but there remain places like Thailand, Taiwan, South Korea where the finer approaches of identifying those people who are symptomatic, getting them isolated, getting them tested and getting their household contacts quarantined has a big effect on the effective R. And that's what this is about. You you want to push the effective reproductive number below one. It doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be pushed below one for long enough to get this thing suppressed uh, for long enough until hopefully a vaccine will come along and provide the kind of herd immunity that we all would like to see.
0: So what is giving you the most optimism right now as we face down this pandemic? Well. I'll tell you, in addition
2: to those countries that are are doing a relatively good job, I am seeing the pace of innovation in the product development side move faster than I've seen before. There's an astonishing number of vaccine candidates out there being uh, moved through testing. There are many that are never gonna make it. So of the hundred or so vaccine candidates that are being moved forward, there are not more than 30 that have a viable chance of success. The foundation for our part are working with partners to invest in a good 10 in in solid terms. And we're trying to increase those investments to 20 so that we have a reasonable portfolio to make sure that this 18-month window that we're telling people, you know, it's going to take 18 months before we have a vaccine that starts getting distributed. doesn't have to be pushed back. But the level of science and collaboration on those vaccine development efforts has been remarkable.
1: What do you think it's going to take to get us out of the shelter in place? We've had a remarkable consensus in our society and other societies of the value of sheltering in place, of social distancing. I think that surprised a lot of Americans at how fast that conversion happened across America. We're a very deeply divided society, but not on that point And the survey work continues to show overwhelming support for that. But then when you get to the how are we going to exit it becomes a little bit more complicated, a little bit more divisive, a little bit edgier about what risk we're prepared to take and how we're going to do this and what time frame and with what preconditions. Tell us a little bit about your thinking on what's what it's going to take.
2: Yeah, it's testing, isolation, and quarantine. Uh, There's no other way out in the near term. So we are stuck between a rock and a hard place here where we have effectively slowed this thing down across the US and in other countries. We've driven the effective reproductive number from two to three down to around one. We've seen this in Seattle, and now we're hovering around one. And we have to open up society again. And the only way to do that is to find those people who are infectious and it's a small percent current estimates for seattle are in the one percent or less range of people out there are infectious but those people can be found their household contacts identified and if those are effectively isolated and quarantined we can drive our even lower and begin to open up society so it's all about the testing isolation and quarantine and I don't think it's as complicated or daunting as some have made it out to be. Do
1: you think that it's within reach in Seattle, King County, to have that kind of system in place in the next several months to give people confidence that they can begin to return to work, return to schools, return to restaurants,
2: modest congregational behavior? I really do. I I really believe we can do it. We haven't done it yet. And we focused somewhat appropriately on the testing part of that. So we we are ramping up our testing capacity as fast as possible. There are a lot of innovations in the area of testing that have been really useful. From very simple things like the assessment that showed that you don't have to do the deep nasopharyngeal swab by a nurse or medical professional dressed in full protective equipment. But in fact, the patient can simply stick a swab in their to the tip of their nose and get essentially the same amount of virus out. So that's a, a very simple but really important innovation that opens up a whole bunch of ways to get the testing done. The second part of it, though, is the isolation and quarantine. And people are intimidated by that. Even the public health professionals that I know and have worked with for many years are intimidated by the scale of isolation, contact tracing and quarantine that will be needed. And it's true, we need to do it on a scale that's never before been contemplated or done in the US or in other countries. But an important part of the message is that from the early studies, we know that when somebody has symptoms and gets tested, at that moment, they know where most of the contacts are that are going to be infectious and can pass it on because those people are in their household. From the early studies, we know that 75 to 90% of the contacts who are going to become infected are actually the household members. So if you list out the 50 or so contacts of any individual who's infected, the people they worked with, the people they sat in a restaurant with, the people they stood in line with at Walmart, those are very unlikely to be infected whereas those in the household have about a 10% chance of being infected. So it is possible to make this a lot simpler than it has been by focusing in on the household contacts at the moment the, the index case is tested and this is really important. So when the when a person gets sick and they say I need a test, get yourself tested. You got cough and fever, get yourself tested and while you're waiting for the result of your test, stay at home and make sure the people in your household stay at home. You do those simple things, you are going to get much of the work of testing and contact tracing done that needs to be done.
0: So let me understand this, if if I understand this right, only 10% chance for family members to get it from you if you get it? That's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. That is right.
2: So these are from the, the early studies. There was a large one done in the US of contact tracing. These were In the day before, people were being routinely identified, and it was about a dozen infected people who were going about their normal business. They didn't realize they were infected. And later on, CDC went back and looked at all of their healthcare contacts, all of their household contacts, and so forth. And then a second study done very similarly in South Korea, both found essentially the same thing, that almost all of the people who eventually got infected were in the household, and that of the household members, it was about 10% who got infected. So despite what we're understanding about the transmissibility of this pathogen, which is not insignificant, the other way of looking at that is 90% of the people that you live with and eat with and share a household with aren't gonna get infected even though you walk around unprotected
0: for a while. It's incredible. You know, A lot of us who have children who are college students believe that our kids have been exposed to it while they were in college you know, over first semester, because a lot of a lot of our kids, especially who go to school in the Northeast, got really, you know, sick with flu like symptoms over, you know, that period of time. And, you know, everybody thought, okay, well, they're just they have a little bit of a cold or a flu or whatever, but it was a little bit worse than normal. And so there's a lot of people in our community who think that their kids already carry the antibodies and then they came home for the holidays and maybe exposed us, maybe didn't. None of us really got sick. So that would explain it.
2: Right. You know, it's quite possible that uh, if people in the college age we know have much milder uh, disease or much more likely to, to get off relatively scot-free from this. And they would have produced antibodies that could be tested for once these antibody tests get up and appropriately sensitive and specific, then they can be used to, to test people and find out whether they were infected. Can you say a few words about the foundation's own
1: efforts and how it fits into this universe of concerns we're talking about, and what are some of the new things that are happening?
2: Right. It's been a remarkable time for me personally to be at the foundation and to see the impact that the private philanthropy like the Gates Foundation can have. We focused early on on three areas where we thought we could really could make a difference. First, our funding is fast, so we can get grants out to organizations within a day a couple of days. And so from the time we decide that we want to fund somebody to get the money out. So we got money to CDC, to WHO, to other organizations like that within days to try and slow the spread of the epidemic. The second is the foundation is focused on protecting the most vulnerable. And early on, we said that is a particular area of ours. We know that in past pandemics, that uh, populations in Africa and South Asia, poor populations end up getting hit the hardest and they tend to be the last in line for interventions, whether it's vaccines or treatments. And so we are going to prioritize explicitly protecting the most vulnerable in those populations. And then third, we decided that we were going to invest in product development, vaccines, treatments, diagnostic tests, and these things take a long time. You gotta put a lot of money in over many months for that to come to fruition. And if this thing was a flash in the pan, then those a lot of those investments would have been wasted. But we, we basically said, we think we're in this for the long haul and we are gonna invest over the long haul, meaning months to years in the, the development of these things. So that has been uh, the major focus of the foundation funding. I would say that about a month ago, we shifted. Melinda and Bill decided to commit an additional $150 million to the initial $100 million. And uh, one of the new areas of the focus was to minimize the societal and economic damage. And that was in recognition by that time, all of these lockdowns and shutdowns had happened, and that an additional unique feature of this pandemic has been the economic and societal damage that has been tolerated. And so so we have been investing also now in um, ways to try and minimize that damage.
1: We're getting towards the conclusion here, Scott. This has been uh, really rich and very informative. Why don't you close by just telling us briefly sort of what gives you the greatest hope in this difficult period?
2: You know, I've I've been through a number of big epidemics and pandemics in the past and after every one there are important steps forward that our country and the world take that make us more resilient and stronger in the longer term. I have no doubt that this pandemic is going to lead to also important steps forward that need to be taken. An example that comes to mind is uh, after SARS in 2003 The international health regulations were completely revised for the first time since 1969 and have been an important framework for the world since then at getting countries ready for for this pandemic. I'm sure that we will strengthen our national ability to deal with uh, epidemics and pandemics as a result of this. And I'm also sure that the international infrastructure will be strengthened, WHO will be strengthened, Uh, the agreements that countries have to commit to pandemic preparedness and response will be strengthened, and governments will be much more ready to invest the money that's needed to protect their populations against this kind of thing in the future. So the pandemic is, ai mean, it's a devastating thing, and when you get down to the individuals and deaths that have, have occurred as a result of it, it's hard to get past that. But But there will be good that comes out of it.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks for all you do. And thanks for being with us today.
2: Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Sandra. Thank you, Scott.